touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Today we want to do the first of a two-part series on a particular developer of video games. I mean, an actual video game developer, not a, not a company. Not We're a company, but a person. person. And... Uh, uh, kind of a, I mean, th- this is someone who has a really interesting take on the design of video games, and he his work has been incredibly influential. He's talked about as a revolutionary or a hero to other game developers. I think he was named in the top five in one survey from 2009. Right, and he, he has won numerous awards. We are, of course, talking about Sid Meier. Uh, and so anyone out there who has played a lot of computer games, you've probably heard Sid Meier's name, particularly since his name is often... Is b- part of the brand. Yeah, it's featured on the actual game titles. So uh, before we get into this, I want to give a shout out. We grab our, our information from numerous resources while we're researching our topics. But one article in particular for this this part of the podcast was incredibly helpful. And that was uh, uh, an article written by Jason Schreier over at Kotaku. And it was called uh, Sid Meier, the father of civilization. So civilization, that's civilization being one of the one games of the many that, titles. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that I, I would say that's a must read. If you are interested in Sid Meier and the, the story of civilization, as well as just the story of the companies that Sid Meier has been a part of, go Check out that article. It was based on a series of interviews with um, with Sid Meier, um, uh, a fellow named uh, Bill Steely, and um, uh, one of the other participants in the uh, company. There's His actually quite, a, the top a, here, quite but, a few. Uh, yeah. a, a series of interviews from 2013. So so it's all really great, fresh information. Um, there was another really terrific article I wanted to mention, um, uh, an article in Gama Sutra called The History of Civilization that was written by Benj Edwards, and it was based on a Sid Meier interview as yeah, well. So. Right. And both, we'll, both of these were just terrific, instrumental. Yeah, fantastic stuff. You guys mm-hmm. should go read those. And and these the civilization centric article will become really important for the second part of our podcast. But in this first one, we're going to focus mostly on Sid Meier's background and his early years in computer game development. Uh, he was born on February twenty fourth, nineteen fifty four, in Sarnia, Ontario, Canada. Wait a minute, this guy's Canadian. <laughs> Okay, uh, show's over. Must aw, that that must explain why he's why he's so nice. That does explain why he's so nice. Yeah, and that's not us being silly or anything. He's been called one of the nicest video game developers by multiple people. Yeah, it seems like everyone who works with him who has given an interview that we could find on the interwebs was was just full of nothing but nice things to say about the man personally. And I've watched several interviews with him where he, you know, he was being interviewed by other people and again, he just comes across as sort of a very genuine personable guy who loves to design games. So it's going to be really hard for me to be snarky in this podcast, but I, I'll find places. I think you will find a way. So yeah. um, so he, he went to the University of Michigan and graduated with a degree in computer science. This was back when, you know, that wasn't really a common thing. Yeah. In fact, back in those days, he was programming computers through punch cards. So if you've listened to earlier episodes of Tech Stuff, I mean, way back in the day, you've heard of us talk about these punch cards that were, uh, you know, it was a painstaking process. Your, your, your program might consist of more than a hundred punch cards and you had to keep them in a precise order for the program to work properly. If you were to have an accident and you had not numbered your punch cards, that's it. Your program's ruined. 
Yeah, so. yeah. Um, uh, this the first computer that he used was at the University of Michigan. It was an IBM 360 mainframe. Yep, and um, he learned how to program in uh, Fortran, as I recall. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he at some point used this. Uh, I mean, you know, th- this was all time sharing, and and uh, uh, you had to sign up for for use of the thing. Yeah. It, at, at some point, he designed a tic tac toe game for it, supposedly, and almost got kicked out for wasting computer time. Right. Right. Essentially, from what I understand, one of the administrators of the program called up the person. Who who was uh, responsible for securing that computer for the university and said, do you have any idea what the student is doing? He is wasting valuable resources on games. Who would ever waste a computer on games? As it turns out, that was probably one of the silliest things that someone could say. Uh, Also, when he was a kid, he had already grown interested in the concept of games. I mean, of course, he was a very imaginative child. He talked Mm -hmm. about how... He would play with little toy soldiers and reenact battles with them. And he credits the a gift uh, that was given to him, a, a book called The American Heritage Picture History of the Civil War, as getting him interested in history. And that obviously becomes very important with some of the titles that he would produce. So Right, right. Uh, I also remember reading that he played a lot of Risk as a kid. Yes. So he, he liked games. He liked history. These were things that really interested him. And he loved computers and, and still does love computers and programming. So when you look at all three of these factors, the Plus computer programming, the, you games. Know, gen, genuine ver- uh, urge to conquer the world. Yeah, well, that's, well, you know, that's <laughs> but in a nice way. You know, right. he's doing it for your own good, Lauren. It's it's not that he's got any malice. He just It's through the development of technology, which we all know is as, a terrific way to win. As Dr. Horrible would say, the world's a mess and he just needs to rule it. So anyway, uh yeah, he began to wonder what would it be like if you could go and you know, with your own abilities, if you were to able, be able to go back into history and take control of some massive force that had been instrumental in a battle and and you were to, to control them and make different decisions, what would be the outcome? And this was kind of the seed that would be planted in his head later on down the road. So uh, he loved programming. He loved hacking electronics. Mm-hmm. And he, he would build his own version of, of games. He, he saw right, games right. out there. And- yeah, he had a, a an Atari 800 yep. and um, would, yeah, yeah, program his own kind of versions of like Space Invaders, I think, is one of them in BASIC. Yeah, he, he said that that was one of the earliest games that he developed for the personal computer. The Atari 800, by the way, had 16 kilobytes of memory. Woo! Yeah, yeah. So, uh... You know, I'm sure Space Invaders probably was uh, stressing that machine out a little bit. Yeah, probably. Um, I, I am being a little silly, snarky there, but uh, but yeah, he he started making these. Uh, he began to work for uh, General Instruments Corporation as a programmer. Mm-hmm. Yep, and uh, he also would occasionally bring in some of the games he had created and for put the them Atari. up on the office's network and you know would eventually have to have them taken down because productivity in the office would take a dive yeah it turns out his manager would call up that old university guy up and say hey do you know what your former student <laughs> is doing actually that that's not entirely true but it's the same sort of thing he was creating games and sharing them and, and taking enjoyment from other people having a fun time with his games and he met someone at general instruments corporation who would become instrumental in those early, early days. Uh, a guy who has a great nickname. It's John Wild Bill Steely. 
usually just called Bill. Yeah. Or Wild Bill. Or Wild Bill. But, <laughs> but yeah, uh, this, this was a guy who had been, um, a major in the Air Force. Yeah. In fact, I think at the time he still was an active major. He was a former fighter pilot. Right. So, um, if you guys don't know what fighter pilots are like, uh, I recommend watching the documentary Top Gun. Now, keep in mind, that's Navy pilots, not Air Force pilots. What? You're just staring at me like, like in judgment. <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine why. Do you not have the need, the need for speed? <laughs> oh. All right. So, uh, anyway, uh, according to that Kotaku article we talked about, Sid Meier, Meyer and Steely both attended an electronics trade conference. And while they were there, they just kind of were exploring and they apparently found a room full of old arcade machines. Mm-hmm. Actually, at that time, they were new arcade were, machines. Yeah, right, right. Um, they, they, they started playing a bunch of them and uh, Meyer was just beating Steely's butt at all of them. Yeah, Steely um, was getting a little frustrated and then they found the Red Baron. The Red Baron being a flight sim. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It, yeah, for for what it was at the time, sort of a flight simulator. It was kind of a a, a shooter that was a World War II based air airplane shooter. And uh, and Steely takes one look at it and he says, "This, a, this is me. I got this. I'm a fighter pilot. I am going to rule this." And so Steely stepped up to the box first and uh, and and got like like on the top three of the. Yeah, I think he actually managed to land the high score. Uh huh. You know, like like seventy five thousand points, something right. like that. He so says. yeah, and then he turns to Meyer and he's like, "Beat that twerp!" And uh, Meyer steps up and calmly takes control of the arcade machine. What happened, Lauren? <laughs> he doubled Steely's score. Yeah, and then Steely looks at him and says, "Wait a minute! I am a fighter pilot. I am a major in the United States Air Force. How did you manage to do that?" Meyer says, well, while you were playing, I just memorized the algorithms that the computer was using. <laughs> yeah, that's something. You know, I actually used to do very similar things when I was at the arcade. I would uh, my dad watch the, the, the way the computer reacted to other people. And I would then, watch. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd watch people play for a good half hour to an hour before I would ever put a quarter in so I could see what was happening. And I, I wouldn't just wander in blind because the quarters I had were few and precious to me. And I did want to play these arcade games, but I wanted to make the experience last as long as possible. Now, I will go ahead and tell you, I, my algorithm recogni- uh, recognition skills are really minor compared to what Meyer was able to do. Well, that's, that's fair. I think, I think being worse at Sid Meyer than at, the, yeah. at, at, at computer algorithms is, is probably that's okay. fair. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, that, I, I don't have to feel. Like, don't have to have some sort of inferiority complex over that. <laughs> no, no. But so, so according to the story, um, after, after this debacle, um, you know, Meyer kind of casually threw out, like, you know, this was a pretty okay game, but I could totally write a better one. And Steely's like, uh, if you can do that, I can totally sell that game. And so Meyer did it. My- Meyer went home and, and over the next few months designed a, uh, a fighter pilot game. Yeah. In fact, depending upon which version of the story you see, and there are different versions. I mean, keep in mind that a lot of the, the information about these early days, this is stuff that people are talking about decades after it happened. Oh, sure. And it's, it's all, it's all very kind of colloquial and everyone yeah. is kind of joking around about it and remembering it fondly, but you know. Yeah. So, so get a little fuzzy with the details, but depending upon whom you ask, if, was like a couple of weeks before he, and then he came back. And again, this also gets a little confusing because um, there are different reports on what the very first game Sid Meier made, uh, what it was called. But according to the Kotaku article, 
the the one that they settled on as being this is the game we're going to try and sell was called Hellcat Ace. That was a World War II combat flight simulator, and it was more than just a shoot 'em up, you know, top scroll game or something. This was a game that actually allowed you to take control of World War II aircraft and do some advanced piloting maneuvers, things like Immelman turns and loops, and you could stall your plane out or roll it and all that kind of stuff. And so they started with with supposedly like like fifteen hundred dollars in startup, and you know, self printed copies of the game and like Xeroxed copies of the instruction manual in put them Ziploc bags and put them in Ziploc bags and and started taking them to hobby stores uh, around town. Yeah, in fact, this, this was, was in Baltimore, Maryland, I right, believe. Right, right, yes. Uh yeah, it was Baltimore, Maryland is where they were based out of because that's where General Instruments uh what had their headquarters. And uh this is not this is not an unusual story by the way. This is how early computer games really got started. You had programmers who were working out of their homes usually. Most of the time, they were doing this on their own time. It was not a full-time gig yet. And they would produce stuff, put them in these bags, and then sell them at a computer store. And the computer store would would then mark up the price or whatever. And often you would walk in and there would be a bulletin board on the side of the wall in the computer store. Because keep in mind, these were not computer game stores. These were stores that sold computers and computer components. Right. This was just something else you could buy in that store. So you would go and there'd be a bulletin board and there would be thumbtacks that would have these games, you know, tacked to the side of the bulletin board and go and you'd basically you would base your your purchase decision on what the artwork looked like on the Xerox sheet that was showing through. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and this was all in the early 80s. I'd say 80 to 81 probably is when all of this was occurring. Yeah, yeah. This is at the very dawn of the personal computer revolution. And of course, at this time, the people who own the personal computers are in large part hobbyists. There are we're starting to see other people buy personal computers by the early 80s, but it it's largely still hobbyist. It's a niche market. So um, what I love is the story about how Steely would uh, convince stores to carry Hellcat Ace. You see, he would actually travel all the way from New York down to Washington, D.C. That was the area that he would consider his territory. OK. Not just Baltimore. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to quote him from the Kotaku article. Now, this is actually what Steely <laughs> told the reporter. He said, I would call computer stores and ask to buy Hellcat Ace. And when they didn't have it, I would yell and scream at them, what kind of computer store are you? And then I'd hang up. I would do that three times in three weeks, each time pretending to be a different person. And then the fourth week, I'd call and say, hello, this is John Steely. I'm a representative with Microprose. I've got this game called Hellcat Ace. And they'd say, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Everyone's been calling about that. Can you help us get that game? (laughs) Nice one, Steely. Yeah, and and you can you can you know this this illustrates the kind of relationship that Steely and Meyer had at this time. You know, St- Steely was very much the the public persona and very much the, the out there go get him yeah. the salesman. And, yeah. uh, and as it turns out, I mean, again, if you read interviews or you see interviews with Meyer. You learn that this is exactly the way Meyer wanted things to go because oh, Meyer, yeah. Meyer was he not a business this. guy. Right, right. You know, he, he wanted the freedom to be able to develop the games that he thought would be fun. And, and this was a, a great arrangement. He didn't have to worry about the business side. He, that did not interest him at all. I mean, he certainly wanted to make a living off of it. That was his dream job, but he did not want to be the one to have to handle all those details. That's not his strong suit. He just wanted to concentrate on making the to games. To make cool games, yeah. And this reminds me a lot. I mean, 
Lauren and I both have a lot of friends who are artists, who are actors, who are musicians, and many of them Un, uh, you know, wish that they could do that, that they could have and Some of them do have managers or whatever that. Oh, handle sure. The but yeah, no, side. that's that's I hear I hear that all the time. Like someone just going like, why can't someone just market this for me? I just want to write another thing right. or, or create why, another. Why thing. can't someone else book me for the next gig? Because right. you know, because it's already pouring your love and energy into what you want to do. That that's that takes up a lot, you know, and then to on top of that, be the one who's responsible for all the business side can be absolutely draining. So Meyer really had a great thing going here. He had, he had the guy who was going to do all the legwork and he w- got to do all the development work. So it was a great relationship for both guys at this time. So, um, at first the, the two continued to work exclusively for general instruments and they, they would sell these games in their free time, in their free time. But eventually, uh, Steely was making enough money doing this that he could try and create his own company. In fact, according to Steely, uh, at the height of this, before he had even founded Microprose, they were making about $200,000 a year just on computer game sales. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Microprose, uh, Jonathan mentioned this name and that quote from Steely was they had already started calling themselves Microprose. Right. Um, which yeah. would be the name of their company in our next bullet point. We'll talk about that. But, um, but yeah, yeah. they had not actually founded any kind of official company yet. Right. It was, it was kind of a name because otherwise you'd say we're two guys who are wanting to sell this game to you. <laughs> And that just doesn't work quite as well. It doesn't, well. doesn't have that ring to it. So, but so uh, yeah. 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 So they're still working for general instruments at that point, but there would quickly come a, po- a time where Steely realized this is something we can do ourselves and we don't need a day job anymore. Or at least Steely didn't at first. So Steely makes a big jump and decides to leave general instruments in order to work full time on the Microprose project. Uh, now there's a lot more to talk about with Microprose. But before we do that, let's take a quick break and thank our sponsor. Back to the show. All right. So we've got uh, Steely. He has left to found Microprose himself. Now, for the first year and a half or so of Microprose, this is 1982, by the way, uh, for that first year and a half, uh, Meyer was still working at General Instruments as a full-time employee and producing games in his uh, off time. Right. Uh, Steely was concentrating full time on selling the games, and it wasn't until about mid 1983 that Meyer felt comfortable leaving General Instruments and working full time for Microprose. It was also that was about the time when Steely could actually afford to hire him on as a full time employee. Sure. So uh, now we've got this this whole uh, company that's starting up, and it's it, it's good now to talk about what Meyer thinks is important when you're making a video game, because that informs all of his decisions moving forward as far as game design is concerned. Right. And um, Meyer talks a lot about, um, you know, a, a good game being a series of meaningful choices. Yep. Give the player interesting choices, choices that are meaningful and interesting. And that is what makes a game fun. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's, you know, it's such a simple philosophy. It's one of those things that's the, that it's deceptively simple because mm-hmm. Creating something that actually feels like a meaningful choice to a player is easier said than done. But uh, but Meyer was was really adamant about it. He says that if it, if it feels like it doesn't matter what you choose to do or or if what you do has little to no impact on the game, it's not that satisfying. It might be challenging to play, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily a satisfying experience. Right, and and he also um he he also talks a lot about. 
wanting to to give players the the choice to create their own storylines, to not direct the storyline too right. directly. Right, right. He didn't want it to have like a his games to have a linear plot, for right. example. So we think about a lot of games. We talk about games all the time on Tech Stuff and other shows that we do as well. Yeah, we actually just did an episode on forward thinking about storytelling, which this was reminding me of so much. Right, right. So, so for example, we talked in that episode of Forward Thinking. By the way, if you guys are not watching and listening to Forward Thinking, go check it out. I think you would really dig it. If you enjoy Tech Stuff, you'll totally enjoy Forward Thinking. Yeah, our writer friend Joe joins us for the podcast, and he's just terrific. He is, and he has that the, the axe that he brings to every <laughs> podcast. <laughs> he has a mystical axe. Yeah, there really it's, it's is a, a plas- mystical axe. It's a plastic axe, yeah. guys. Don't worry. We're not in danger. Right. Well, no more so than <laughs> usual. At any rate, uh, in that podcast, in the storytelling podcast, we talked a lot about the, the video game The Last of Us, which is out for the PlayStation 3. Now, The Last of Us is, in my opinion, a wonderful video game. I love it very much. However, it is somewhat linear, and you could argue that the choices the player makes do not in the end, impact the story that much, which is not the approach that Sid Meier likes to take. He likes to take a different approach. This does not mean that one approach is automatically better or worse than the other. They are different with different goals. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, uh, my, my favorite quote from Meyer about this is, I prefer games where the player can lead the game in the direction that they want, and then they kind of end up with that unique story that only they can know. Right. And that's, you know, that that is a very valid point of view. It's also very challenging to do in a way that... As a designer, right. Yeah. Um, it, letting the player come to those conclusions for themselves is, is very tricky. Yeah, because if you just give a player an open world and no direction at all, then it's really hard to get something going, to make something happen. Uh, you might be able to make some tiny thing or, or uh, a temporary thing happen, but there's, if there's not enough to tie a game together, then it's, again, more confusing than satisfying. So mm-hmm. finding that balance is really tricky. But uh, but he did it well enough that um, the next year in 1983, when the, the video game industry crash happened. Yeah. Uh, and how it happened. It yeah. happened a whole bunch. Um, uh, you know, th- there were just so many, so many games that were not great that were being pushed out very quickly by development teams for, for the Atari. Right. Yeah. Especially things. I mean, obviously we've talked about this so many times, but, right. but titles like, uh, ports like Pac-Man for the Atari 2600 or, of course, the one that everyone always quotes, including myself, E.T., the extraterrestrial. The, the game that was so bad that they ground it up and buried it in the desert. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, these were, these were games that, that flooded the market. It diluted the market. It made everything less valuable. Plus you had lots of different consoles hitting the market all at once. And it just, it, there was just too much and uh-huh. it, it could not support itself. And eventually the industry collapsed in on itself. And you would think, okay, so they, Tiny startup from the previous year. Yeah. That doesn't look good for them, but, but they, but they lived through it. Um, yeah. they continued selling games. Yeah. Part of it was that they were, uh, developing computer games, not console games. Right. And a lot of people were moving toward computers and they were feeling, you know, kind of let down by the consoles. Right. Yeah, exactly. So in a way, they were in the right place at the right time. Plus with Sid Meier's philosophy, of, you know, you're, you're taking this simple approach and then adding complexity and that makes a simple game into a very deep and compelling game. Uh, but you make it, you, you add that complexity in a way that the player can, can, uh, uh, grow and learn with as opposed to just throwing everything at them at once. This approach really worked out well. And so, uh, one of the games. <laughs> 
that was released. And uh, I actually found gameplay video footage of this. I, I, I remember this one. I, I remember Floyd yeah. of the Jungle. You remember Floyd of the Jungle? I, I, I very dimly have this mental image. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a platformer game, a side scrolling platformer. Well, not even side scrolling. It's just a side view, but a platformer game kind of similar to the old Donkey Kong game. Uh, and your character could lo- run around, jump, and climb up uh, uh, vines to try and rescue other characters from impending jungle doom. <laughs> and up to four people could play at the same time, which made it, you know, kind of a, a remarkable game. This is a computer game where you four people are all playing. Uh, they're all trying to race around and and save this vaguely feminine figure from <laughs> Doom. The more feminine blob as opposed to the more masculine blob. Yes. Yeah. Well, you you, were, you knew it was supposed to be a princess. <laughs> but the idea was that, uh, it, that you know, you were competing against these at le- up to three other players to try and rescue her first. And there are all these other uh, obstacles and dangerous animals in the way. Oh, that's a, that's a terrific gender normative thing right there. That's yeah. great. Well, anyway. You know, yeah. You know, yeah. That's... Simpler times. <laughs> yeah. It was 1983. Anyway, yeah. um, so <laughs> I remember the 80s. So it was, it was around then that that Meyer started going to um, to game developer conferences. There was one in particular out in San Jose um, where he met up with with people like Will Wright, who would go on to create SimCity. Yep. Um, and, uh, uh, Dan Bunton of, um, Mule, Mule fame. fame. Yeah. Right. So anyone who's played Mule, that was a, uh, that was a very popular game in the early eighties as well. And mostly these guys would meet up and they'd talk about how they liked each other's games a lot. Yeah. It sounded like they'd all just would just nerd out like, I, I like your game. You like my game. I like your game. Yeah. But there was no real collaboration. In fact, Meyer would say like, you know, we admired each other. We thought that the games were fun. And but- I think that they influenced each other, um, indirectly, you know, taking sure. parts of each other's work that they admired and. Right. They they would look at something and say, wow, I never thought that a computer game could do that. How did they do that? How how could we use something that's similar to that? Right. So it wasn't so much like, uh, like I wouldn't say it's plagiarism, but it was certainly taking inspiration from sure. the work of others. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, and, and Meyer said that they were all kind of really focused on what they themselves were doing to the point where they didn't really want to share it with anyone else. They wanted to be able to build it themselves and then release it. And kind of continue this this uh, this trend of oh I, that game you made was really great as opposed to come here and help me make this really great game huh, right, so it's kind right. of there was like a little bit of competition and a little bit of showmanship going on but it was it was a lot of mutual appreciation as well. Uh, so by 1985, a game called F15 Strike Eagle, yeah. um, uh, another another combat uh, combat flight sim. Um, uh, had, had been released and went gold. Yep. And then you got the game called Silent Service, which was a submarine simulation game. Now, these simulation games, this is what Steely wanted to seize. Especially military-based ones. Right, right. Because right. this, this made sense to him. This was the stuff that he thought had a strong following in the, in the computer game world. And as a, a member of the armed forces, it was something that spoke directly to him. So he was fully behind this. And in fact, Meyer would say that uh, there were times where, where Steely essentially just wanted Meyer to churn out. not to continue making flight sims over and over and over and over right, and over right, again. Right, right, right. Churn out is probably a too too harsh a term. But yeah, that's exactly what I think Meyer's too polite to say that, but I feel like yes. that's how he was probably feeling. Right. So, so 1987, Sid Meyer 
creates a game that goes outside this realm of the military simulator. And it's the game I alluded to back in the, the when I was talking mm-hmm. about pirates, because mm-hmm. Sid Meier's Pirates comes out. Pirates and, with an exclamation point. Y'all, Don't forget the exclamation this point. game. Oh, I will never forget <laughs> the exclamation point. Okay. I owned a, ga- a version of this game. I want to say I even owned it on the Apple IIe. Uh, which was probably a port of Pirates because he would he he programmed most of his games on the IBM PC uh, once he moved away from the Atari 800. So Pirates is a, a it's a game where you take the role of an aspiring pirate. In fact, at the very beginning of the game, you are I think a stowaway aboard a pirate ship, and uh, you end up challenging the captain for the control of the ship, and you have a duel with the captain, presuming that you win the duel. You then go on to captain a ship and you try and make your name in the Caribbean and you can do things like uh, uh, sack towns. Sometimes you can become a privateer for a particular nation. So you might uh, sign a letter of mark with uh, the British and now you can act upon behalf of the British. And so if the if. If Britain is at war with Spain, you can pirate Spain all you want. Yeah, and, and you can you can get credit from the Brits while Spain is shaking its fist and going, you know, they, <laughs> I want my silver back. But uh, in Spanish, yeah, yeah, yeah. I no habla español, unfortunately. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, it was a hablo, hablo, whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I look, I speak, I speak <laughs> English and I speak it poorly. Uh, anyway, so. Uh, it was very much kind of a swashbuckling sort of pirate game. It wasn't meant to be a historically accurate depiction of pirates, although it did, it was set between the years that people generally think of as the golden age of piracy. You could play very early on, like in the 1560s if you wanted to, but it was more challenging because there were fewer ports to actually work with. So if you ticked off a faction, you quickly find yourself hard-pressed to get rid of all that filthy lucre you managed to get. Hmm. Like, you know, when you were pirating ships, you would end up with um, with massive amounts of various goods. And so it wasn't just money. You had to find a way to offload the goods, and you wanted to find a good selling price, which meant that, you know, you didn't want to tick everybody off. So I take it that you were a fan of this game. I liked it. Uh, <laughs> I played this game a lot. And, uh, and, and there have been multiple revisions of this game. We're not going to talk about every single game Sid Meier has had a hand in, obviously. And especially not the, all of the sequels, because that, right. that would be exhaustive. Right. But so, so Pirates was. Literally, that would be exhausting. That's the word that I was looking for. <laughs> anyway. Um, exhaustive and exhausting. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it was a great game. Obviously, I loved it very, very much. Uh, and they, you know, re-released it a couple of times with the revisions, including an Xbox version, uh, which I also own. Um, so anyway, the, this was a departure from those military combat simulators. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, and it was such a departure that the decision was made at some point to put Sid Meier's name on the box, call it Sid Meier's Pirates, because previously um, uh, his, you know, d- just to be like, hey, this developer that you like also had a hand in this one. Right, right. Maybe you want to buy it. It was it was sort of the, the establishment of a new brand, Sid Meier, as a brand, not just right, as right. a person. According to Steely, um, this was a suggestion that happened at a dinner of the um, Software Publishers Association that Robin Williams made. Robin yeah. Williams was hanging out at the time. And apparently made them laugh for like two hours straight. <laughs> and then eventually he turned to Steely and said, what you should do is put this guy's name on the box and make him a superstar. 
So, it, again, your mileage may vary. People have different stories about why Sid Meier's name was attached to this, this title, but the fact is, it was. And that became kind of a kind of a a, a a trademark well i mean real, literally it is a trademark but <laughs> it kind of became a trademark in the sense that you would see a lot more games come out sid meyer's blah 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 mm-hmm. whatever the whatever the game title was yeah. and um you know it was it was interesting also cuz it gave meyer another challenge besides just building something that wasn't a a combat simulator mm-hmm. uh he had to work within the technical challenges of developing a game that needed to look very lush and beautiful but within On the such limited processing power for the right. time or at the time yeah and he he began to develop some some pretty cool approaches to that so he actually pushed the video game uh development process forward just by innovating in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1989, development for what would become Civilization started. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, like with Pirates, Steely really wasn't excited about the game um, yeah, in, and, fact, in, in the beginning. Uh, and uh, development would wind up getting delayed uh, multiple times so that other projects could be pushed to the forefront. Yeah. We'll tell we'll, we'll tell the whole story behind the development of Civilization later on in the uh, second part of this. Right. It is. It is. You know, I think that that's the part that it's certainly the two of us are very interested in. And so we wanted right. to break it off and, and yeah, it's, devote a lot of time to it's, it. It's so much stuff. And, and it kind of overlaps with a lot of the other things that are happening in this timeline. We figured it would make it more of a cohesive story if we just grouped it together. Mm-hmm. But uh, by 1990, that's when Sid Meier's Railroad Tycoon comes out. And this was another big departure, right? This was a business simulation game, not a combat simulation game. Mm-hmm. And it was a real-time strategy game where you were trying to build railroads across the U.S. and Europe. Um uh, this was also the year that um, Meyer's first son, I, I, I think only son, maybe Ryan, was born to his mm-hmm. first wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also around this time that um, that Steely bought out Meyer's shares in Microprose. Um, this this was a voluntary move. Uh, Meyer, you know, knew that the company was starting to head into the direction of of uh, consoles and arcade machines, and he wasn't really interested in pursuing that. Yeah, he wasn't comfortable being tied down to a company that was making some choices that he felt were were limiting his ability to create games. That was, you know, again, that's all he was really concerned with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so a new VP of development took over for Meyer at Microprose, um, and and this new VP didn't receive personal bonuses on Myers' releases, right? So, which you, ended up being part of the sticky situation that they would get into that, with that civilization, yeah. with that, that that led to the deprioritization of some of these titles. Yeah, yeah, because you, you you know, Microprose was developing other games that Sid Meier did not have a hand in because there right. were there were more people working for Microprose now than just Steely and Meyer. They and were, and they were they were putting out a lot of games actually, either um, personally developing or porting from um, from smaller companies. Right, or they were publishing stuff that was being developed by other companies. So Microprose is not just a developer but also a publisher. Right. So they were publishing some games that were developed by other developers. And so, uh, you know, the VP of development, he's getting bonuses on games that were developed by Microprose, but not on bo- uh, games that were developed specifically by Sid Meier, like because the Sid, Sid Meier's Because games. Sid was a, was a contractor at the time, so he didn't have uh, technical control over those. Yeah, so that uh, – we're getting a little political, and we'll get more political when we get into the full civilization story. Um, but in 90, that also was uh, the point where uh, – uh, the civilization work really starts to kick into high gear. Uh, he was coding it on an IBM PC at the time. And then 91, uh, you get to a point where civilization actually publishes. 
Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a strategy game where you're actually trying to start with a very basic, uh, unit of a particular nationality and build a civilization and mm-hmm. all a, that a, that entails. A almost prehistoric, uh, uh, early historic. Yeah, yeah, to the point, well, civilization. You, you haven't developed, start. you haven't developed reading and writing yet because okay. that's one of the first, so prehistoric that's one of the first, yes. uh, technologies you can develop in the game. Yeah, so you, you start off as a, a a nationality, you can choose which one, and they have uh, different advantages and disadvantages. Uh, you start on a randomly generated map, although, of course, in later versions of Civilization, if you wanted to, you could start on... On the, a world map. Yeah, the, the Earth's map at, at, of varying sizes, depending upon which version of Civilization you're playing. Uh, and your goal was to try and create a civilization. Winning the game, there were multiple ways to win. You could either... When, based on points, the game would end once it hit a certain year. I want to say it's like 2050. Um, then uh, uh, if you had the most points at that point, if you had the most points at that time, you <laughs> would end up winning. Uh, or uh, you get, could... Get, um, get, getting points by um, by uh, conquering and developing technologies. Yep. And uh, and creating uh, uh, improvements to your cities, that sure. kind of thing. So, or, you know, your population, lots of different factors would uh, would be involved in creating your final score. You could also take over other civilizations, and if you managed to do that to everybody, you won because there was no one to compete against. Um, there was another way of getting uh, winning by being the first to to send a a space exploration colony out to Alpha Centauri. Oh, right, because the you know the the concept of the game, if you've never played them or, or never really heard that much about them, is is that you are you are developing all of the technologies necessary for the civilization, and it extends beyond the point where we currently are now into right. yeah, space. You, Hypothetically, you, if you get there, you would eventually get to, especially in things like Civilization Two, you, you would develop all the technologies in the game, and then you because that part of the game would continue. You know, you could continue to develop technologies, but because it went beyond what we are currently able to do. They would just call it future technology one, future technology right. two, yeah. future because yeah, you had gone beyond what you could actually do in the game. Uh, and anyway, there were multiple ways of of winning this game, and and that was part of what Sid Meier thought would make it really compelling was the idea that you had multiple nationalities, so that gave you a lot of incentive to play it in different ways, mm-hmm. and there were multiple ways of winning, so that meant that you could choose different, uh, different strategies any, yeah. every time right um and uh and succeed it did um yeah. it, uh, <laughs> despite despite the company not really giving it that much marketing power it sold more than 800,000 copies yep um you know before the internet right um, right yeah the internet existed but no one the web didn't there was right. no web yet and hardly anyone <laughs> who even knew about the internet had access to it because again this was mostly com- uh, uh colleges and research institutions that had access to the internet the rest of us we might have email that would be about huh. the extent of it right. so yeah the fact that that this game had to succeed mainly they, they didn't get a lot of marketing behind it either they mainly succeeded on word of mouth and then eventually the magazine started to started review picking. it <laughs> right because magazines existed yeah then. that was a thing do you remember those <laughs> i do okay. in fact yeah. um so around 1992 or so uh like i had said microprose was trying to get into um into a lot of arcade Arcade stuff. Um, yeah, actually creating arcade cabinets based on old titles. Uh, in particular, um, they they had tried to do a uh, version of that F-15 Strike Eagle. How'd that turn out? Poorly, mm. really poorly. So poorly that um, that they they did an IPO, an initial public offering, 
just for cash. I mean, just it was like a, one of those desperate bid for cash kind of things. Yeah, the company was falling into debt. Uh, Steely was starting to feel the squeeze mm-hmm. from a financial standpoint. And uh, eventually... Yeah, so so the next year he would wind up um, selling Microprose to Spectrum Holobyte. Yep, 1993, Microprose is uh, acquired by Spectrum Holobyte. And uh, Steely would stick around until 94, and then he leaves Microprose. You know, this was a tough time for, for the company. I mean, the ob- already, obviously, Meyer had started to feel a little disenchanted, which is why he mm-hmm. went to the whole contractor. Oh, right, thing. right. And it, it was around 93 that Meyer started backing off of development entirely. You know, he was he was a, I think, um, trying not to stress himself out over creating the next civilization after civilization came out and was sure. so popular. Um, and uh, he wound up developing a music application called uh, CPU Bach. Yeah. And we'll talk about that a little bit later because that... Uh, it comes out uh, a little after 93, but that's when he started working on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, in 94, that's when Brian Reynolds, who was another uh, developer over at uh, uh, Microprose, ended up being the lead developer for Sid Meier's Colonization. Uh, I also played this game. And Colonization was a game where you, as a European explorer, would and with your band of Europeans, would come over and subjugate Native American tribes and build colonies and spread smallpox. Except in a cheerful way. I'm sure that smallpox wasn't actually part of the game. Um, Was it? I don't remember smallpox being a part of the game, but you could, and you could choose different routes, right? You didn't have to... Subjugate the native people. Yeah, no, you didn't, yeah, you didn't have to slaughter everybody if you didn't want to. You could trade with them. You could try and build uh, relationships. Uh, Sometimes they would react poorly to those relationships, which would just kind of make you want to go through the whole slaughter approach. Uh, Plus those... Those Mayans had a lot of gold, man. But anyway, um, uh, it was a, you know, it was a, a very kind of a focused approach to that same sort of civilization feel, but specifically under the new world colonization. And at that point, uh, you started seeing other games coming out under Microprose, some of the other games from uh, other developers, not just Microprose. So things like, uh, Darklands, which was a role playing game or the Master of Orion, which was a space strategy game. And uh, now we're getting up to 1996. This is where we're going to we're going to conclude this part of the podcast with this year, because this was the year that Sid Meier and uh, and and Reynolds and another fellow by the name of Jeff Briggs left Microprose. Uh, this was uh, they were feeling like the company was just moving in a direction that they didn't really care for. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of layoffs that were going on at this time. Yeah, uh, Spectrum was was managing them from the opposite coast. They were out west. And, uh, you know, just, yeah, no one felt like they were really they, treating... They felt like, they, that, like the magic of those group of people who really loved to make games was being sapped away by all the rest of the stuff that has to happen for business to work, or at least for business to work in this particular uh, setup. And so they left Microprose and founded a new company. But we're going to pick up from that point in our next episode, where we'll talk about the second half of Sid Meier's career, which is still going right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, guys, if you have any suggestions for topics that we should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, come on, let us know about it. Because if you just shout, unless we happen to be nearby, we're probably not going to hear you, and maybe we don't even know what you're talking about. So write us an email. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. You can find us with the handle techstuffhsw. 
Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 